I'm Chelsea Parker. I'm a freelance fiddle player, and this is The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. I am Jay Franzi, and if you're new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with a producer, an on-air personality, and a host. We get to talk with Rena Friedman Watts. We'll talk to her about her time producing the Jerry Springer show, what it was like working on Nanny 911, and we'll take a deep dive into her own show, Better Call Daddy. Now, Rena is one of the best people I've ever met in the industry, and she has the greatest sense of humor, and I can't wait to talk with her tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Miss Rena, how are you? I am awesome. Thank you for that very warm introduction. That was so sweet. You really, truly are one of my favorite people, my friend. You really are. Aww. Thank you for joining me tonight. I've been looking forward to this one for quite a bit of time. <laughs> yes. All right, my friend, let's just dive right in. Let's get to it. You spent some time on the Springer Show. Can you tell me what was it about that show that helped you build your ability for storytelling? I think that the Jerry Springer wasn't like such a far stretch from where I came from, which was Kentucky. And so my dad and my grandparents worked in a factory. I even actually worked in the factory over a couple of summers and those kinds of stories I would hear at the lunch table. And so I found Jerry Springer guests to be relatable and fun and I wanted to know more and it sparked my curiosity and interest. And I was fresh out of college and I was given petty cash I started off as an intern. <laughs> I got to learn Chicago right alongside the guests, which was so much fun because they got to eat around town. I got to eat with them. They got free smokes. I smoked with them. They got to go to the House of Blues. I went with them. And so I learned so much. <laughs> and it was just, it was pre-internet. So you were able to really be present and just soak it all up. And I'm telling you, if you worked there, it was, you lived and breathed the job. It was a whole lifestyle. So I, there were days where I worked seven days straight. I worked hundred hour weeks. I went from intern to producer in one season because I really loved the environment. It was my opportunity to work on a nationally syndicated show. And I was willing to pretty much do whatever it took to get an office there. <laughs> Well, let's, let's start there for a minute. How do you even get your foot in the door to become an intern there? They took a lot of interns right out of college. If you're willing to put in the time and you're willing to entertain the guests and to be honest, the best way to get promoted was to be able to book a story, to be able to get on the phone, connect with people and get everybody in the story to agree to come. So 
that was really how I got promoted was I got on the phone and I was able to start getting people to Chicago. That's insane. So what was a typical day like? (laughs) Oh, man, it was going through hundreds of calls a week and trying to figure out which ones were real, which ones weren't, and could you get them and everyone involved in the story to agree to either hop on a plane, a bus, or a train. (laughs) So are these people submitting their stories? Yes, they were calling the 1-800-96-JERRY number. That's awesome. So they call you with some outlandish story, and it's your job to get on the call with them to discuss the story, you know, feel out whether or not it's real, and then see if you can start putting the pieces together. Exactly. So, yeah, you call back whoever left the message. Then you say, hey, can you get your boyfriend or husband or the chick who's banging on your door down the street? Do you have her number? And then you call everybody individually, you talk to everyone individually, and then you pitch the story to the higher-ups. They have to talk to them next. And you kind of pump up that person before they talk to the higher-up. And then the higher-up makes the decision. And then you get them out to Chicago. They either stay in like the Red Roof Inn or if they're really (laughs) fancy, the Sheridan. (laughs) Nice. Take them out for a meal, take them around town. I actually enjoyed that part too. Because like I said, I was new to living in a big city. I was a small town girl and (laughs) there was petty cash available. So I got to party with them. (laughs) And I, you know, was around their age. I was fresh out of school. So I had the energy for it. (laughs) Well, there's a couple things there. So that leads me to believe that the people who are calling in with these stories and you're vetting them. So are most of the stories at least based on some sort of truth? Yes. If they said that they were married, they had to prove that with a marriage certificate. If they said that they were related, they had to also prove that through matching last names, through license, through birth certificates. Yeah. How do you verify their story? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. You get better and better at it by the questions that you ask, right? Like if you say, when was the last time you slept with Sally? And then she says, if if the timelines don't match up, right. then that's a pretty good indicator. But people are good at making sure their story is solid. So you, you got to ask these questions pretty quickly. <laughs> so you're hitting them up separately, I assume. Yes. So you're asking these questions and if their stories match, okay, great. Come on out to Chicago. Right, exactly. So then the next thing is you get to go out and you get to go to restaurants and entertain these people once they hit Chicago. So. So what's that like? You're out with people you've never met before. They're telling you some of the most outlandish stories, and half the time they appear as if they hate each other. And you're going to take them out for a night on the town. But like, you know, I'm 21, 22 years old, and I'm hanging out with people that noticeably stick out. You know, little people, people over 600 pounds, people conjoined at the head, strippers, you know, Jerry was the start of (laughs) reality TV. You know, the talk show industry was really, I feel like, at the forefront of that. And a lot of our guests were even recycled on other shows, like Howard Stern and Maury and all of these other shows. And so, yeah, so... I'm from Kentucky. I'm taking these people out and I'm getting looks and not even realizing it. You know, I'm just having a good time. But so, with that said, do you feel as if you kind of shaped that show along with Jerry? Do you feel like you played a part in that? Hmm. Actually, just recently, I even saw like this guy 
he was like a 70 pound baby, I think at like one or two or something. And he was on the Jerry Springer show. Like in the beginning, it started off where they were covering just outlandish, you know, tabloid type of stories. And anyway, he's recently lost a lot of weight. And I think Daily Mail did an article about him. And so I reached out to him on Facebook and was like, hey, I worked for the Springer show. I saw your article in Daily Mail. I would love to do like an update story with you. And I'm interviewing him on Thursday. So that's awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> Booking now is a lot easier than it was then. I used to have to pound thousands of calls a week. And now you literally can find a name of somebody that's been written about in People Magazine or in Daily Mail, and you can find them very easily on the internet. This is really funny, too. So I kept a photo album of letters that guests had written me or, you know, just funny pictures I took with the conjoined twins or the guy with no legs or, you know, the midget I partied with in Jamaica. I took pictures of all of this <laughs> stuff because this is pre-internet. This is pre-documenting it online. I made a photo album of these things. And I went back through because I had phone numbers of people. I had addresses of people. Like people had given me their personal addresses. They wanted me to correspond with them. None of these numbers worked anymore. And that's another thing. At Springer, like, if, if you didn't call that number, that number could be disconnected oh. within, like, two to three weeks. Like, you're never getting a hold of that person again. So the it, they were urgent. Anyway, so every person I tried to reconnect with out of the ones that I had, I was only able to reach two people. And I have an entire photo album. <laughs> I can only imagine. You get to start posting some of these pictures. I'm sure people would love to see them. I know I would for sure. Crazy. So what is your, your most memorable moment working there? Oh my gosh, so many. I have to say though, I think Springer Break in Jamaica was pretty memorable because there was food fights and just, I got to fly first class for my first time and I was traveling with guests. Some of our best guests got to go to Jamaica. And so I was babysitting and getting paid and partying all in one in Jamaica at hedonism. That was pretty insane for a 22-year-old. <laughs> so were you organizing that? I mean, what was your role in that process? I was an associate producer. So I was coordinating the guests, babysitting some of the guests, doing Springer cam shoots with some of the guests on the beach, and then partying when the shoots were over at night, which, as you can imagine, was insane. Like I even snuck off the resort with one of the guests. We still keep in touch to this day. Like you just are never going to do that twice. <laughs> I, I love it. Were his shows, were they filmed live or were they recorded live? Yeah, they were recorded live, which let me tell you, the audience members a lot of the time could also be guests. And we did book people from the audience. So <laughs> it was give just... Give me an example. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but like when the audience members would flash for for beads, it, it became like Mardi Gras in the audience. You know, the guests were flashing the audience and the audience was flashing the guests. And just the Q&A too, where the audience were like going after the guests after their stories completed and the guests were like calling, like we briefed the people who were on the show to go after the audience. But the audience did it back with no briefing. You know? So you actually worked with the guests to kind of coach them through how to behave with the audience? 
Well, I'm like, look, you're a home wrecking whore. Like the audience is going to hate you. That's your role. Like you are to be hated. And when they call you a home wrecking whore, you show them what kind of whore you are. You know? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So <laughs> I can see how this is all coming together and how this plays into your world now. But tell me how it helps you shape a story now. Hold on. I'm like, how does this play into my role now? Yeah. Well, you know, because <laughs> you bring up a whore and all. No, the storytelling piece. How does it help yes. you shape a story now when you're when you're interviewing people? Uh, I think the key to interviewing people is just the rapport, like the way that you introduced me and the way that you know my background and the way that you've done your research. I think that that honestly helps you get into the story and make it so much more conversational and easy for the story to come out. And that's what I always try to do is like make the person on the other end like you and want to talk to you. How long did you spend on the Springer show? I was there for two and a half years. So two full seasons and then the start of a third season. All right. What made you leave? That's a great question. I think at the time, it <laughs> I didn't know it was burnout, but definitely that. And I also never thought that it was going to go on as long as it did. And so I feel like I produced the season opener for a third season and kind of went out with a banger, you know? It was like after working on two full seasons, I was starting to feel like, oh my God, does anybody have like normal relationships? This is starting to wear on me. And also one of the guests even said something to me. He was like, how can you live with yourself? And that that actually did hit. I never really thought about that. But then I was like, you know what? I was like, I've produced enough shows to get into the Producers Guild and and uh, have kind of gotten a fill of this. And I would like to like move to LA and and work on another show. And thank goodness I was able to do that. So I went from Springer to getting into the Producers Guild to really starting all all the way over and not knowing anyone. I worked on a pilot. It was a CNN pilot. And the special effects animation company who I worked for offered me a desk job after that. And I took it. You know, they were seasoned producers, the Kyoto Brothers. They may even hear this, love them. One was a director, one was a producer, and one was an animator. They did like a lot of studio productions. They worked with Disney and they did Team America. They did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it was just a different side of the industry that I got to learn. So that was really cool. So what was your role there and how did it differ from Springer? I went from being a producer to back to being an assistant to three producers. The great thing about working for people that had been in the industry for a long time was they let me wear a lot of different hats and I kind of got to see what I liked doing and what I didn't like doing and just really helped out where I was needed. And I ended up working for them on and off where while I was answering their phones and doing their accounts payable and receivable and helping set up location scouts, I got a field role as an associate producer slash interviewer on a VH1 show and they wanted me to go on the road for six weeks and they let me go and then come back when it didn't get picked up. So that was lucky. <laughs> what was that? Oh, it was it was called Motormouth. It was really like the start of Carpool Karaoke where somebody sets up a friend and they think they're going to like do marketing research for a CD that's playing in the vehicle. 
But the thing is, is that the person who set them up, like, tailored the CD to all of their musical likings. So they drove around in this brand new SUV, and it's pumping all their favorite songs. So you know they're going to act crazy. So we had the whole car rigged with cameras, and they're picking their nose and dancing and singing to people (laughs) and drive throughs And then the friend gets in and, like, eggs them on to do challenges. And that's film, too. So I was the person interviewing the friend or the relative that set the person up. So kind of like one of the hosts. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. And I got to go to like six, seven different cities, but I didn't end up working on the second season. And I went back to the Kyoto Brothers and worked on Team America, which is really cool to see all of that, just the different rounds of the script and the writers and, you know... <laughs> It, it was a huge production and all the puppets come together and the marionette puppets and just working with all the actors. So that was really cool. Well, you're going back for the second time and now you're going back again with a different set of experience. So how did that play into your, your time going back? That's a great question. Oh, yes. Every time you try something new, then you're able, I feel like, to bring new eyes or new understanding to the role. So I feel like I was able to network better and to understand people's roles better and to ask more questions and to be more involved. I I feel like I got confidence for like going away for that six, seven weeks on the road and like getting to be a part of the production side. Just that experience just helps you become more well-rounded in general. And they've probably got to give you a little bit more respect for it too, I would think. You know, the great thing about them is that they all had that dream that I had. And that's why I think they let me leave and come back because they wanted me to succeed. They came to LA for the same reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they were like excited for me actually when I landed that. But then when, you know, I got another opportunity, they're like, okay, you can't just keep, you know, leaving and coming back. So I had to spread my wings. (laughs) So you, you flew away. Where'd you fly to? I flew away. Yeah, I I worked on a couple different pilots and shows, you know, and sometimes they get picked up and sometimes they don't. I worked on this other show. It was a cool concept. It was called Kill Reality. It was an e-show. And it was a bunch of different reality stars from like Big Brother and Real World and Apprentice and all of these shows at that time. You know, it was like a star from each one of them and they all lived in a house together and then they got the opportunity to star in like a Hollywood feature. So they were filming the behind the scenes of all of these reality stars living together. And then they were, they were filming the making of a movie, which I think was like a direct to DVD. It was pretty bad. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) No, I, I absolutely cannot. So how much of the reality shows are real these days? So when I worked on that, to be honest, I mean, it it was a while ago, but like every room in the house was filmed except for the bathroom. And then what went on in the bathroom, you could get the audio from outside the bathroom. So they would overshoot, basically. You know, if you put people in a house long enough and they're all drama queens... Stuff happens and, you know, they they find the story by just overshooting what happens in the house. I don't think 100% they, like, had the story arc figured out prior to them living together. Yeah. Well, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, I like to think that if you're going to call it a reality show, that there is some realm of reality to it. So even if it's based on the reality and then, like you said, you pull a story out of that reality. 
because you're not going to have anything without the story. So again, that goes back to your abilities too. I mean, did you have any say in that story, putting a story like that together? I was, I was an associate producer on that one. So actually I made a nice big mistake and a learning opportunity because I think somebody like, there was something that happened where somebody was like getting ready to come into the house and like the producers can't be in the house. Like, when the drama is happening, but like I needed to tell someone something and then they came back like quicker than I realized they were going to come back. And I was literally in the scene (laughs) when it like blew up. So that sucked. Like I really thought I was going to lose my job. So I, I, I learned to be a little bit more careful. So when that happens, what happens to the footage? Do you keep it? Do you use it anyway? Yeah, that's the thing. Not all footage is used. I learned that at Springer too. Like, ultimately, people are going to do what they're going to do, and you can't control others. I definitely learned that lesson more than once. You can try to plan moments. You can try to have a camera crew there. But sometimes stories unfold the way that they will, and and you can't even set them up. The magic really just happens a lot of times. But when you're talking about the rooms and how the producers can't be in the rooms and you have cameras in every room, but do you actually have cameramen in every room? Right. So that's the thing. Like if you know that something big is going to happen, like a confrontation is going to happen, like they have additional cameramen where you can see more sides of what's happening. Yeah. Cause I mean, you might have cameras around the rooms, but they're just going to catch things from a wide angle. Exactly. Yeah. No, that, that's pretty cool. I mean, I like that. And it's got to be exciting for the, the camera operator too, because they don't know what's coming next, where if you're filming a movie or if you're filming a TV show, like a series, you kind of have an idea of what's going to happen, where the script's going, where the actor's going to walk from point A to point B. But in this particular case, you don't know. And you have to get the best possible angle. I mean, that's going to be a tough job for them. And you don't want to be in the way. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to get in the way. Yeah. That's the thing, too. Like, even when I was doing some of those Springer cam shoots, like, if you're filming two people that want a piece of each other, there were times I thought I was going to get hit. You know what I mean? Sometimes being a part of the action is fun, but sometimes being a part of the action can be dangerous. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I can only imagine it, too. Especially on the Springer show when they're throwing things around and things like that. But you mentioned something earlier about the guests asking you how you can live with yourself. And from going from that moment and then working on reality shows, which, again, can be drama-filled, how do you push through something like that? There was no show that compared to Springer in that environment. Nothing was as crazy as that in every show I worked on. Not even with all of those contestants, not even with Johnny Fairplays of the world. Love you, Johnny. No one compared to the guests and the fights and the drama of Springer. Seriously. I imagine. I mean, you see what you see on TV, but if, if you know, a lot of that is real, then it's got to be happening when the cameras aren't rolling or when, oh. you know, like you said, there's footage that doesn't get used. And you have to be in the middle of it a lot of the times. So did you ever get hurt or did anything ever happen to you? I never got hurt, but 
I mean, like I said, I was young. I was naive. Sometimes I just had a handy cam. There was one guy that I literally was following with a handy cam. He was a streaker. He was getting naked all over Chicago. And I didn't know that you can't do that like an NBC tower. I mean, there was footage of him like taking it all off and running through NBC. I was like, oh my God, like on the security cameras, you know, and running through construction sites and, and like the open ice rink and putting like construction cones on his privates. I'm like... I'm going to get arrested. It was like Borat. You know what I mean? Like they filmed it and then got in trouble afterwards, which I actually also interviewed with Borat, but I took Nanny 911 instead because I was like, you know what? I spent enough time like defending my role on Springer. I think I'm just going to go a little bit cleaner now. <laughs> well, you say that. Let's talk about Nanny 911 for a second. I mean, that was kind of crazy in its own in its own way. So what were the similarities and what was different to you? Similarities is that, yeah, there always has to be drama. So a kid kicks a ball and it hits the nanny in between the legs. or you know, It's a little different than like, you know, right. a mother and a daughter wanting to rip each other's hair out. But you, you need crying kids and you need parents not on the same page and, and you need people walking out of the house and storming off. So I would say that is a similarity, like instead of walking off a stage, you're walking out the front door. Right. The difference is, it was more formulaic. There's a chaotic home, the nanny comes in, gets the parents on the same page, writes out some rules, and voila, the family is fixed in a week. <laughs> I love that. Well, let's talk about that for a second. You're a mother, I'm a father. I mean, you were there. When the nanny comes in and gets everybody in alignment were there any takeaways that you could take and apply to your own life? That's a great question. My biggest takeaway from that is if you're going to have children, hire a babysitter. Like start looking for babysitters before you have the baby. <laughs> Good babysitters are hard to find and you will need one. <laughs> we had one and then waited a long time before we had the other. So that way the first one could babysit the second and third. Hey. You're set. Yeah, yeah, me too. So my oldest is 15 and my youngest is four. And yes, I definitely use my older kids. To, I'm doing that right now to, to come hang out with you. Yeah. But they don't always want to. So it's good to have a backup. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm like you. My oldest is 13. I have a nine and a one. A one. Can you believe that? No, Aww. no. We should not have a one. And these were all planned. This is bad. This is really, really bad. The one-year-old yeah. is a menace. They're all girls, and she's a menace. She climbs on everything. She, I mean, I walked in today. She was crawling across the dining room table from one end to the other, just crawling. And, like, she saw me coming, and it was like a race car took off. I'm like, this isn't going to end good. So, but, yeah, That's so really if cute. there's any tips, Aww. tricks you have or you get from this 911 show, please send them my way. I can use all the help I can get. You know, I called one of the nannies after I had my first kid. I was like, I have clearly learned nothing from watching three seasons of this show in post-production because my kid is not meeting any of these timetables. <laughs> like, I could not train my first kid to go to the toilet until he was four. So I called the nanny about that. And my fourth kid, I literally nursed till he was four and could Whoa. not get him out of my damn bed. Fourth kid? Yeah. I guess I, I missed one somewhere along the way. Yes. I thought, I have three I thought boys we were tied at three. Hmm. All right, then. 
And like you, I decided to mix things up after things. Everybody was sleeping through the night. Everybody was toilet trained. I was working full time, had a nanny. Yep. Decided at 39 to just make my life exciting again. (laughs) Speaking of the 39, my wife and I didn't even get married until I was 40. So, I mean, we get married at 40 and then still had kids that far apart from each other. This is, it's going to be a tough one. Are you tired? They they say it's going to keep me young. It's going to either keep me young or drive me down. One of the two. There's going to be nothing in between. There's activities all day long, every day. There's something going on with these kids. They need to slow down. I am totally with you. I even said to my dad, I was like, oh, my God, the amount of driving (laughs) that I have to do. It's crazy. Yeah. But I'm glad. It's a blessing. I drive them to school every day, pick them up every day. I drive to their events. I mean, I'm their chauffeur for sure. So, hey, it is what it is. Hey, and let me brag for just one moment too, because my nine-year-old, she's a dancer. She's been dancing for years. She just got accepted into the Cincinnati Ballet for the professional version of the Nutcracker at nine years old. Oh my God, that's so exciting. Congratulations, that's amazing. So give her a little bit of props, but... Let's go back to 911 here. So what what was your day like there? What were you doing like when you first show up in the morning, you make yourself a cup of coffee? What's your first activity of the day? Not only did I make myself coffee, but I knew what other people in the office drank. That was part of being a post-production supervisor, especially for, I won't name names, but we had an editor who was kind of like a supervisor editor. And... Yes, I catered to that guy. I brought him coffee. But yeah, I I supervised voiceover sessions, which is really cool. So there was some ADR where the nannies had to re-record things in scene that the audio might not have been as good in scene. So sometimes they had to re-record bits. Also just, you know, for the introductions or the transitions or the teasers for the episodes. I got to work with the nanny and that was really cool. I, I loved that. That was a lot of fun. And I scheduled all of those. I also was in charge of, you know, monotonous time cards <laughs> for all the editors and making, <laughs> you know, all of their schedules. And what's interesting is I was a, a post-production supervisor on on Nanny 911 for three seasons. And I personally was not even at an editor at that time. But after working on that show for three seasons and learning about layback sessions and cleaning up audio and color correction and voiceover sessions and all of the post side of things, when I was pregnant with my first kid, I took a Final Cut Pro class because so many editors had called me into their edit bays to be a second set of eyes. And I ended up working on a documentary with Carol Karimi, who worked on Nanny 911 just as a side project because she was one of the editors that I loved and always would call me into her bay. You know, it's like these editors, they're editing and editing and editing. And sometimes they just need a fresh set of eyes to like see it and make sure that they're not missing something. Sure. No, I could see that exactly. I mean, I used to mix records every day and you get used to hearing something and you start getting so, you know, narrowed in and focused on something, whether it be the sound of a snare drum, whether it be the sound of a reverb or something very specific. And then somebody from the outside walks in and says, oh, dear God, this is so off or this is off. And you didn't even notice it because you were so fixated on something else. 
So I can understand that. But when I was a teacher, one of the things we used to talk about was when you're going to go out and be an intern and you were talking about getting coffee, not just for yourself, but others. I couldn't stress enough how important that was. And they're like, well, I'm going to school. This is the reason I'm going to school so I don't have to get coffee. It was always, no, that's not the right attitude to have. When you're trying to break into an industry and you're trying to work with some of these professionals, you should do anything it takes to get into that room. And if it takes making a cup of coffee, make a cup of coffee. So did you ever find anybody that you were working with that had an attitude that needed to be adjusted? Oh, I I can think of someone in particular. I'm actually still connected with her, but... I don't know why filling out time cards, people hate that so much. And I'm the one that had to turn them in. I'm like, don't you want to get paid? Like, so it was such a pain to people. Like people really hated filling out their time cards and it was something that I was in charge of turning in. So, you know, not only was I in charge of the deliverables to the executives at the studio and knowing the specs of the tapes that I had to deliver them, but I was also in charge of doing all of post-production's time cards. So, you know what I started doing? I started filling them out for everyone. And I would literally, instead of just saying, have you done it? I'm like, can you sign it? Like, right. you know what I mean? Like I filled out the paid, whole thing. Sign this right here. Yeah. Yeah. That made my job so much easier by the third season. I was just like, I am better off just filling them out for people and just having them sign and making sure that we're good on the hours than having to ask them two and three times. So I literally did. And I think that's why I stuck around for three seasons. I'm serious. Like everyone loved that I did that. Right. Of course. Yeah. You're taking something that they don't want to do off their plate and they should want to get paid. They should be filling out their time card and all that stuff. It's just crazy to me. Some of the things that people try to avoid, but no, it's good. And it's those things that make you excel because by you taking on that responsibility, others see that. And then you're the one who's putting in the extra effort. And, you know, that's the type of thing that gets you to advance. I would say that too, even about uh, the Kyoto brothers, like the accounts payable and receivable on productions can be really annoying too. Like taping all of those receipts to paper and itemizing everything. Look, I I mean, I hate doing my own taxes, but I picked up that responsibility. I did did do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't want to get fined. (laughs) and, And every dollar matters you know, especially on large scale productions. Well, it's so easy now too. I mean, you can just snap a picture with your phone. It saves the receipt. It puts it into accounting software for you. I mean, there's so many tips and tricks you can do with expenses. And from somebody who had to spend a lot of time taking clients out. So I would take clients out for dinner almost every night of the week. You know, I've eaten at every steakhouse across the country. So I just take my phone, take a picture, you know, put it together. It just keeps track of it. It was very easy. But, you know, those things happen, especially when you're starting to run your own business, right? And then you have to start even taking things a step further. And I know you have your own show now, and I'd like to talk about that. I'd like to take a deeper dive into it because it fascinates me. It's a very interesting show. Thank so, you. So, first of all, it's a show you you do with your father. Can you kind of give us the basic layout of the show? Yeah, so I interview interesting and controversial people. I share the stories with my dad, and then he listens to the episodes separately. And then we have a powwow about it after where he adds his intergenerational perspective. Which is awesome. And just listening to your father is awesome, too. I mean, he just comes at things (laughs) entirely different than anybody else would ever do it. it. It's funny to me hearing some of the things that comes out of his mouth. So... 
again, let's step back. Where'd the inspiration come from? You know, looking back after three years now, I, I will say I think it kind of came from my Springer roots. It's like I love interviewing people and connecting with people. And just like Jerry gave his final thought, I was like, oh, my dad could do that. Like my dad's a total character and I have a good relationship <laughs> with him. So I wanted to share that wisdom with the world. All right. Well, let's let's talk about Springer for a second. When he gave his final thoughts, were they pre-planned or did he do them off the cuff? I think they were pre-planned. I think he wrote a lot of them himself. I think he did actually write some of those. But yeah, they they were scripted. I'm assuming that your father is not. Yes, they are all off the cuff. Very rarely do we at all talk about the guest until we record it. Sometimes right. I will call my dad and tell him about an interview I just had, but he he won't listen to it until it's edited and he does it on his own. And then I send him a link and we have a conversation about the guest together. And I want him to have his own thoughts without me even steering him in the direction that he's going to go. I'm curious. It's It's like you know, a mystery book, right? Like we both read a book and then I'm like, hmm, which path did he take after? <laughs> right. It's like a book club. Yeah. So you're you kind of getting the inspiration from the Springer show. So you hunted the guests, you booked the guests. So are you taking that role for your own show? Yeah. Although now at this stage of the game, I have so many, like literally every single day, somebody reaches out to me and wants to be on and, and that's amazing. And I do attribute that to the growth of the show, which is really cool, but I am having to be, and you know, as a podcast host, more selective because I'm like, do you have a mic? Do you have a bio? What's your daddy relationship? Have you listened to the show? Like at this point, like I would love to be able to interview everyone, but I have had to become more selective. When you're identifying a guest to come on the show, what is it you're looking for the most out of a guest? Yeah, somebody who has no filter. <laughs> somebody who's comfortable on the mic. That makes it so much more engaging. Somebody who sends me a script of what they want me to ask them is probably not the best not the way guest to go. for my show. <laughs> Right. And I've had people do that. And I'm like, look, I appreciate that. That's helpful. That's like, you know, That's maybe every it. author, speaker, coach. Yeah. Right. I was like, maybe I'll hit on one of those, but just know I am very off the cuff. I like to just have a conversation and I don't like to be married to a script because I can actually tell people when they're reading from a script or when they have it all mapped out. I, I just, that's, that's not my show. No, not at all. So when you're doing that, though, do you try to keep a general focus on the topic? Well, like when I interviewed the host of Jewish Matchmaking, I actually watched the whole series and kind of wanted to know the behind the scenes of that. Also, I noticed that she was wearing a fashion brand that I had interviewed the founder of that fashion brand. So I wanted to know about that. I felt like that was a personal connection that we had. But I also wanted to know her daddy's story and like how her parents played into who she match made. And so I, I like the daddy angle to, to be included. And if the guest isn't at all willing to talk about their relationship with their dad, like even if they don't have a relationship with their dad, 
Like, can you talk about That's why? A story within itself. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I've had people reach out to me, like the kinds of individuals that you're talking about, like authors and coaches and, you know, fitness people and great. Like, they obviously have kind of their own agenda of why they want to be on podcasts. But then I'm just like, hey, what's your relationship like with your dad? And they're like, oh, I haven't talked to him in 10 years. And I'm like, are you willing to talk about that? <laughs> right. And they're like, I don't talk about that. I was like, mm, well, then this might not be the best show for you. Right. <laughs> it's kind of in the title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> hmm. Who knew? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, the whole show doesn't have to be about Better Call Daddy. Like, I have interviewed financial right. advisors, but they did just also have a baby and they're a first-time dad. Or I've interviewed people that are in the CIA, but what's it like to leave the CIA and choose to to be a dad and homeschool your kids? Everybody wants to know about your life in the CIA. Like, yeah, that's part of your story. But also, the focus of my show is about intergenerational wisdom. What have you taken from your family? I I think the best guess, and this honestly goes back to my Springer days, are the ones that like, I have no filter. I'm like, you're perfect. (laughs) When I reached out to the guy that was a 70-pound one-year-old, he was like, I have no filter. I was like, you're in. Do you have a mic? (laughs) You have a stable internet connection? We're good. Seriously. Yeah. If somebody tells me that they have no filter and that they love the family angle of my show, like pretty much those are are good qualifiers right there. (laughs) Right. So you go back to the the Springer days where you're you're putting together stories and you're doing that now. You're you're drawing on those skills. So do you think that sets you apart? I think my unique relationship with my dad sets me apart. And that's funny because I didn't initially think that was gonna be the hook, even though that is the title. I I do think that that is the part that can't be replicated. Oh, absolutely not doesn't only add an element of humor to it, but you know, it's definitely a hook that cannot be replicated for sure. I love it. I mean, I absolutely do love it. Thank you. That is a segment that can't be replicated. Do you think that humor plays a part or a strong part in storytelling? Oh man, I love comedy. I seriously, it's my favorite thing to do with my husband for date night. Yes. And the more comfortable you become on the mic and the more comfortable you are with the guests, you can just be yourself and funny moments happen from being yourself and from being comfortable. I mean, how many times have my my jaw dropped during this? Like, you are definitely making me laugh. Yeah. I think if you can make people laugh, if you can make people cry, if you can make people relate, they'll tune in. All right. So if you have laughed now, all I need to do is make you cry, right? So oh, see. no. <laughs> Just turn on the news. Where where can we? Yeah, no kidding, right? That makes me cry every damn day. Oh my my, god! Tell my wife I've never never reached a point in my life where I just didn't want to hear the news at all. I literally had to unplug for more than twenty four hours last week. Yeah, like completely turn off my phone. Yeah, just don't even turn it on today. Let's let it go. All right. Well, we do this thing here we call unsung heroes, where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody behind the scenes or somebody in your personal life. That doesn't typically get some recognition. Is there anybody in your life that supported you that you'd like to shine a little light on? You! 
you because you are one of my unsung heroes. You support me on Twitter and Facebook and and you believed in me from the beginning. So thank you. And also my husband. I don't give that guy enough credit. He deserves so much credit. I got top billing, right? <laughs> yeah. Want, all right. Because we're working our way down in order. I just want to make sure that we're well aware that you mentioned me first. Um, <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Yes. But the hubs needs, he needs more surprise thank yous for sure. Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Rena is an awesome person and just a great storyteller. So please join me in giving her a big thanks for taking the time to share her stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. Please follow, share, and connect on all the socials. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzy.com slash episode 35. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzy.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.